I once knew a young boy who had faith. He had faith. When he was seven years old, his family moved to New Jersey, to a new town, to a new neighborhood, and he knew nobody. But he knew that God would find him new friends. How did he know? He had faith. He knew during that hot, humid summer when he and his family were living in one room above a garage, sleeping on mats and cooking on a camp stove, dad was out of work and mom was real sick. He knew that they would always eat and have a place to sleep and that his family would always be together. How did he know? He had faith. This boy knew that when dad finally got a job, soon mom would get better too. He had faith. He knew that when they moved into that tiny, ramshackle, drafty one-bedroom house that leaked when it was raining, it was okay. They would soon be better off. They would soon have enough room so as not to have to sleep in the living room. Why? He had faith. And it was great when his dad found an old beat-up silver trumpet for only $15 so his older brother could honk and squawk while practicing. He knew his brother would get better. He knew because he had faith. (laughs) Simple faith. They started school that fall, and he had a nice teacher with a funny name. And he was the best reader in the class, so it didn't matter that he lived in a ramshackle, leaky old house and wore mission barrel clothes. Besides, his family had lots of fun together. And you guessed it. He had faith. And once you know it, just as it was beginning to get colder in the fall, he and his family got to move into a much bigger house with two bedrooms. It even had a real bathroom and a real bathtub. And mom was feeling lots better. But he wasn't surprised because he had faith. Dad had been able to buy a real neat old car and lots of Christmas presents, three for each of them even his first Bible with pictures in it. And he was so happy because he had faith. This little boy had the inborn capacity to see God behind everything. When he used the saw from his new Christmas toolkit to cut a branch off the apple tree in the backyard, he knew Dad would get mad, but not for long because he had faith. Then... This boy grew up. He began to do things himself. He started working real hard, earning everything. He felt it was his responsibility to see that he had nice things and a good place to live. After all, he had worked hard for all these things, hadn't he? He was still the best reader in his class, but it was because he worked at it. He became an athlete, and he worked out and ran and honed his skills, lifted weights. He worked hard, and he earned what he gained. This boy worked hard at school, worked hard at his part-time jobs. After all, it was all dependent on him to get through school, to get ahead. He worked to develop his talents and even use them for God, for, of course, his own selfish purposes. But hadn't he earned them? And weren't they dependent on his hard work? He went on to college, working his way through, got a job, worked hard, got married. He began to accumulate things, bought a house, achieved success. And he was doing great when suddenly he stopped. Or maybe someone stopped him. 
He looked at his empty, religious, self-sufficient self and realized something. He had lost his faith. No, not, not his faith of salvation, but the look of faith, looking to God, trusting God, depending on God. He was realizing that in and of himself, he could really do nothing. Faith. Faith in the world, words of Oswald Chambers, is the inborn capacity to see God behind everything. The wonder that keeps, keeps you an eternal child. Now today, this morning, I'm going to spend a few moments talking about faith, about faith. Whole volumes have been written about faith, and we can't be exhaustive today. But I hope to leave you with a few thoughts that will encourage you, no matter where you are in your faith journey today. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 11th chapter. Hebrews 11, starting with verse 1. It's on page 974 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If it can be seen, it requires no faith. If it can be touched, it requires no faith. If it is within reach, it requires no faith. If it is in our possession, we need no faith. If it is in the present, we need no faith. But if it cannot be seen, cannot be touched, is out of reach, is not yet, but it's future, then it requires faith. Faith. What is faith? Let's start by looking at the substance of faith. Roman numeral one. Substance of faith. Two phrases in ver verse one describe faith. First is being sure of what we hope for. Number two, being certain of what we do not see. This is hoped for, not seen. The first phrase is assurance, letter A. What we hope for, what we hope for. This describes future because we don't already possess it. The word assurance has the idea of a title deed or an earnest or a pledge. A pledge or a guarantee. A guarantee. How many of you have purchased a product, bought a car, ordered something on the internet and been disappointed? Okay. We're about 100%. Good. How many of you have bought something that worked just fine until the day after the warranty ran out? Okay, we're about 75%. Okay, that's true. How many of you have seen a commercial on TV, TV where the company president says, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Yeah. Okay, we've all seen those things. And if you're like me, you like guarantees. You like a store that stands behind its product. A warranty that lasts, a guarantee that I will get my money's worth. I shared this story before. It's now an urban legend. A man received a shirt and tie as a gift. The shirt didn't fit, and he didn't like the tie. He happened to be traveling to 
and through Seattle. And he was staying there a few days, and while there, he decided to take his shirt and tie to the local mall to see if he could exchange it for something he would like and something he would wear. So he brought them into a department store, and the clerk helping him discovered some things. Number one, the man did not have a receipt. Number two, they did not carry that brand shirt or tie. Number three, the, the shirt and tie were not purchased at that particular store. But because the store's guarantees are so good, the clerk found him a shirt and a tie that he liked and exchanged it straight across the board. True story. The store? Nordstrom. Nordstrom's. I love that kind of guarantee. You may not like their prices, but you've got to love their guarantees. Faith is being sure of the guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I've done a whole sermon on just these two verses, but I just want to look at it very briefly today. Illustrating this from the passage is assurance or the guarantee, which means it's something that we don't have in full yet. Our inheritance of eternal life. When you receive Jesus Christ, enter that, that journey of faith, it says you have eternal life, but it's not totaled yet in its possession. But you have what's called a uh, a, a, a person, part of that, and it's assurance. It's a deposit, a deposit. And we're given assurances of that, and we believe it by faith because we get the deposit. The word for assurance has the idea of a title, deed, or earnest or pledge. This was used in business to document the basis of guarantee of a tra transaction. Now, if you want to buy a house, okay, if you want to buy a house, and I know that Kristen and Josh just bought a house about a month ago, um, you put earnest money down. You put earnest money down to show you're serious. They call it earnest because you're earnest. And this deposit is payment in part, guaranteeing the payment in full at a later date. So you say, I'm putting this down, and this is the deposit, and it's the same thing of what's going to follow. In other words, it's money that guarantees that later you'll pay in full for the house. The first installment guarantees the rest will follow. The same word is used in the modern Greek of the engagement ring. Of course, we all know how earnest that can be, but that's, a, that's another story. Paul describes in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a seal or a pledge. The Holy Spirit is given to believers, but we've not yet realized the total fullness of what's to come. The kingdom of God or our salvation, it's future. So we look ahead being sure, hopeful what we don't yet have because we have the deposit. And because of that deposit, we believe. How? By faith. By faith. The substance of faith is the assurance of something we hope for that is in the future. It's future. So faith has to do with future. We don't have it all or we just have a portion or we don't have it yet. What are some things you're hoping for right now, today? What do you hope for? When am I going to be healed? Wrestling with a physical issue. 
When am I going to get through this depression? When am I going to realize my dreams of getting married? Or when can I expect to get out of debt? Are my kids ever going to grow up and leave the house? You know, things like that. Things we hope for, they're not yet. They are all future. So, hope for, not yet, it's future. The second phrase used here describes conviction. It's conviction of what we do not see. We believe when we do not see. What we see with our eyes has substance or real essence. Things which in themselves have no existence yet become real by the exercise of faith. Now, physical eyesight produces conviction or evidence of the visible, physical things. We can see things. We can see them. So we know they're there. Faith enables us to see the invisible. The invisible. It actually enables us to see the invisible. The spiritual, the future things. With certainty. With certainty. Verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What does that mean? Well, Psalm 33, 6 and 9 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Everything that we see was put into place by spoken word. God spoke it and there it is. Now, Copernicus and Galileo believed that there was more out there in space than we could see. And, of course, Harlow Shapley and Edwin Hubble did too, and they developed telescopes to explore space. You know about the Hubble telescope that is exploring space, looking out there. Why did they do that? Because they knew by faith that there were more galaxies out there. They couldn't see them, but they knew by faith there were more galaxies out there. And telescopes confirmed that. Now, that's just the physical realm. It was created out of nothing just by the words of God. What about the spiritual realm, which we cannot see? Do you believe in the world of the spirit, the spiritual? Do you believe in the future? Do you believe in the future? Can you see it? Can you hear it? Can you touch it? Can you taste it? No. We believe that the future is coming. How? By faith. Faith actually makes the future real. Let's bring this down to every day, every day. Answered prayer. Things where God intervenes that you can't explain. Back in the 90s, um, I accepted a pastoral position in a town about an hour and a half north of where we were living. And we lived and owned a home in Tacoma, Washington. And we thought, no problem, we'll just sell our house because we were in transition. We we're going to sell our house and we're going to move up to this place an hour and a half north. And we'll buy a house up there and move. It happens every day, no problem. So in the meantime, I started to commute. And the commute through Seattle was at minimum every day, an hour and a half each way. Some of you, how many of you have ever done a commute like that? Okay, some of you. So how many of you are still in that? We'll pray for you. Yeah, it's, it's a trial of patience. It was tortuous, and I wasn't used to, you know, I, I'm the kind of person, if there's somebody in front of me, I want to come up right behind so they speed up. Well, when you're in traffic and it's bumper to bumper, you, you give up on that after a while. They're not moving. Neither, neither the 300 people in front of them. They're just there. So you're driving. I remember one night it took me f almost four hours to get home. 
It was, it was insane. So we're doing this commute. We put our house on the market for sale by owner. Then we tried a discount broker followed by two full price brokers. We tried a home auction, everything. Our house went sell. It was a nice house in a nice neighborhood. And we had found houses up where we needed to live, but we had to sell ours first. Finally, after six months of that, I just put the for sale by owner sign back in the yard and said, God, you're going to have to sell it. I can't, I can't do this. One day I was making my miserable commute, praying as I did. By the way, my prayer life got a lot better during that time. Not only praying for that, I just decided if I'm going to do something for an hour and a half every day, I'm just going to pray. So I started praying. I, I mean, I was, I was a pastor. I was praying before then. But I just, it, it's like this, this expanded my prayer life. So one day I'm praying. And as I was praying going along the road, and I remember where it was exactly on the freeway, I thought, you know what? I'll bet it's the devil's fault. It's the devil's fault. And so I started rebuking the devil for keeping our house from selling. And God stopped me. Now, I know preachers and pastors are supposed to hear the voice of God all the time. But I don't just hear that all the time. But God really spoke to me that time. And he asked me, he just asked me a question. I'm, I'm rebuking the devil. And God just spoke to me and said, am I sovereign? And... And I mean, I, literally, I, I just about pulled off the road because I, it's like, wow, he asked me a question. And of course, I was angry. So I said, I used to think you were sovereign. You know, how, I don't know how many times you, you've been in the position God could strike you dead, and he didn't. You know, that's God's grace. I, you know, you just tell him what you feel. And, and I just said, I used to think you were sovereign. And he just right away said again, am I sovereign? And I said, yes, you're sovereign. End of discussion. It was like there's nothing else to say. So I continued my commute. So I'm driving. Five weeks later, keep driving. And we went to a Friday night dinner with friends who told us about this brand new house we had not discovered. Now, to show you how God prepared the way, we had a rambler, which was very desirable in the neighborhood. And, and so... Um, We'd had somebody look at the house before, and they gave us a real lowball offer, and we said no. So we, we couldn't do it for that much. Well, it happened to be an elderly couple that lived down the street, and they lived in a two-story house. And when they first looked at the house, the, the wife had just fallen down the stairs. She didn't get hurt. Didn't get hurt, but she'd fallen down the stairs. So her son came over and wanted to see about a rambler. They wanted to live in the same neighborhood because all their friends were in that neighborhood. So the next day after this Friday, this lady fell down the stairs again. Didn't get hurt. But that time, they got really serious. Well, in the meantime, we heard about this, this house up north that we, in an area we hadn't thought about. So we found out about this. So, so Friday night, we heard about this house. We get home. On, Friday, on, on Saturday morning, I get this phone call from this guy. and said, we want to make an offer in your house. I went, Oh, okay. His mother had fallen down the stairs again. So he said, we're going to make an offer in your house. I said, fine. 10 o'clock, you made a full, full price offer on the house. We said, wow, that was fast. And so then we drove up to look at the house. Everything about the house was perfect location. Everything, the price range, all of those things happened. And at 1 o'clock, 
we put our earnest money down. Actually, they gave me 5,000 cash on our earnest money. I put it on our house up there. I found out later it was illegal, but don't tell anybody I did that. <laughs> I just had it there. So what we tried, for, what I tried in my own effort for nine months, tried everything I could think of, God did in three hours. Three hours. Three hours. We still own that house. It's a lot longer commute right now, but... <laughs> God did some miraculous things. Now, that was not real, but God made it real. It was by faith. It was by faith that we saw that. And God gave me the faith to believe and have faith, being sure and hoping of a future that was not seen. And God worked it out. Well, let's look at the object of faith. The object of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What or who is the object of our faith? Why do we place our trust in this unseen God? When I do, is it because I have such great faith? Some people say, you just need more faith, more faith. Let me illustrate this truth. This is hypothetical. Um, we buy groceries a lot. Of, I've seen a lot of you at festival. We buy groceries at festival. And so let's say I went into festival and I went up to the checker and she rang it up and I started writing a check and she says, um, oh no, no, you, you bounced eight of the last ten checks. She won't take my check. I'm saying, well, you got no, I don't use checks anymore. I use, but let's just hypothetically. And so, so she's not going to take my check. And right Behind me is Vern. And Vern has been shopping at festival, writing checks for 57 years. And so, maybe not quite that many. I'm just kidding. And she takes his check. He's never bounced a check. Now, does that mean that she, ha that she has great faith? No. It means that it, there's no faith in me. It means that she has great faith in him because he has great credibility. Great credibility. She rejected, rejected my check but accepted Vern's. It's not because she has great faith. It's because Vern has great credibility. See, our faith in God is not because we somehow work up enough faith, if I only have enough faith. It works because God has great credibility. God has a track record of faithfulness and answered prayer, provision, grace, and forgiveness. So God is our object of faith. We find it in in the Gospels in Luke 8, 22, and the followers of Jesus who are crossing the Sea of Galilee to get hit with this huge storm. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. And they cry out to Jesus, Master, we're going to drown. Jesus rebukes them and says, Where is your faith? Who is the object of their faith? Jesus. Jesus is the object of their faith. Later on in Matthew 14, Peter gets out of the boat to walk in the water to Jesus. He takes his eyes off Jesus looks at the waves and thinks, I really shouldn't be doing this, and then starts to drown. And Jesus saves him and says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Who's the object of faith? It's Jesus. Jesus is the object of faith. And if you are like me, and like Peter, probably, in that story, we do everything we can possibly do on our own, in our own strength. Then when we've exhausted all our options, only then do we look to God and say, uh, no, I need you. <laughs> I guess it's up to you, because I can't do it. And sometimes I think it's good to have tasks larger than we can possibly accomplish. 
circumstances that are impossible to deal with, then and only then do we look to God, the object of our faith. But I don't have that kind of faith. Where does that come from? Let's look at the source, source of faith, source of faith. It's God or the Word of God. Romans ten seventeen says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. The context of this passage in Romans 10 has to do with saving faith, trusting Jesus as personal Savior. Verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's the beginning of our faith journey. And if there's someone here who does not know Jesus personally, you're trying to figure out why you struggle so much with faith. This is the starting point. Without this faith, this saving faith, we cannot even begin. And without this faith, we can't continue. Without faith, it is difficult to please God. Is it hard to please God? No, nearly impossible to please God? No. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And our whole spiritual journey, the whole spiritual journey, is about moving from our independence from God, reliance on self and self-effort, and moving to dependence on and reliance on God. Faith. We wonder, why does God allow these circumstances in my life? Yeah. I have to realize I cannot do it. It takes faith, and it takes faith. The object, of course, is God. If we come to God, we must believe he exists, not only that he exists, but he's a God of the biblical record who revealed himself to human beings, demonstrating that he is the searching, loving God who rewards those who earnestly seek him. Remember, faith is the inborn capacity to see God behind everything. Let's look at the practice of faith. Practice of faith. So what? How ought we to live our lives? How do we practice our faith? Martin Luther, the great theologian, founder of the Reformation, came home one day and found his wife all dressed in black. She was in, in mourning clothes. And he said, what happened? Who, who's died? And she said, God has died. His answer, and I quote, woman, have you taken leave of your senses? God isn't dead. He can't die. He's eternal. She answered, I'm glad to hear that. The way you've been acting lately, I was sure that God had died. Martin Luther said, I then realized how wise a woman God had given me. God dead? Many times we live as if that's the case. It's called practical atheism. Believing in our mind, but living as if God were dead. And sometimes we go through this cycle every day. Oh, oh, that's right, God's alive. Oh, that's right, God. Oh, that's right, my faith. It's got to be in God. And some of us today may be living as practical atheists, whether it's out of work, a physical problem, marriage relationship, a difficult boss, or maybe just the small things. Sometimes we just think it's all just the big things, but sometimes it's the small things. Our lives are made up of the sum of small decisions, little turnings, minute choices, the sum of mostly small incidents, burned breakfasts, traffic, fender benders, door dings, schedule interruptions, sprained ankles, unexpected bills, sick kids. These don't come from heaven, but the God of the universe is behind, before, and around, 
working through all of these things. And if we don't let God into these everyday happenings and details, practically speaking, we're not letting him in at all. Practical atheists, remember, faith is seeing God in and behind everything. Now, some people raise the issue of faith with the claim that our faith is blind or blind leap of faith. I remember my philosophy professor at the University of North Dakota. We had so many debates. He did not like me. But he quoted Kierkegaard all the time and talked about Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard was a philosopher that proposed that Christianity was a blind leap of faith. It's just kiss your brains goodbye and there you go. No. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you are mountain climbing with a group in the Swiss Alps and you have a Swiss guide leading your group. In the middle of your climb, a raging blizzard strikes and visibility is near zero and darkness falls. You are trapped on the side of this mountain in the dark, in a blizzard, in danger of freezing to death. And the guide says to you, in order to survive, we must find a place to pitch our tents for shelter. Now you tell me, okay? We need tents for shelter. And he, he says, right now you're hanging on the side of the mountain. Three feet below you, in the dark, you can't see it, but in the dark, is a six-foot-wide ledge where you can pitch your tents and survive. So just let go and drop. Those who claim that Christians have a mindless, blind faith says, we just let go and drop. That's not so. Before I take that drop of faith, I have some questions for the guide. How long have you been a guide on this mountain? How well do you know this mountain? Have you ever been in this circumstance before? Have you ever lost anyone before? What's your track record? And if I like the answers to those questions on the basis of sound evidence, I believe in the guide and then I let go and drop to that ledge. It's not blind faith. It's faith based on evidence. Our faith is not blind ignorance nor trite dismissal of a known fact, but a faith based on sound evidence. The whole of Hebrews 11 is the accounts of men and women who stake their entire lives on the unseen, the hoped for. And it worked. And it worked. Faith. Where are you today? Are you on the edge of a cliff? Are you in those blind circumstances? Let's look at the results of faith very quickly. What happens when we practice this kind of faith? Verse 6 says, we please God. Verse 2 says, we are commended by God. We're rewarded by God. Are you looking for truth? Look to God. Are you looking for reality? Look to God. If you come to God believing he exists, he is personal, your search will be rewarded. Seek, and you will find. So what happened to the little boy in our story? The one who grew up, the one living as a practical atheist, the one who lost his faith? Well, he found it again. And I'm still struggling with it. 
It's hard for me to realize that faith comes from God and there's nothing I can do to obtain it. I still try hard to do things on my own and to explain everything as if it were something I did or I didn't do, and that's why. But I'm learning, just like you, that God is behind and in everything. In one sense, I'm trying to return to my childhood to once again experience that simple childlike faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us some examples in, of what faith is. And I pray that you would help us to develop that faith. We know, God, that life is tough. Life has been challenging, especially this last year. And it's taking time to come through that. And I just pray, God, that you would help our eyes not to be on our circumstances and all that we are experiencing. Not on the seen, but the unseen. And that our hope and faith would be in you. Not what we can do, but in what you have already done and challenged us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.